1: Of the press isn't just important to democracy, it is democracy.
2: We're here to hold elected leaders accountable. Yeah. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us. we to see you back here next
1: time. Hello, Until then, hello. Hello. In the wake of the barbaric killing of George Floyd, as America smoldered over still another case of unequal justice, Michelle Obama channeled the anguish and anger of the moment when she said, I'm exhausted by the heartbreak that never seems to stop. I'm Jane Whitney. On this episode of the Conversations on the Green podcast, you'll hear from three guests who personify the best of what the criminal justice system can be. That's because all three stand beside the rule of law without fear or favor or partisan politics. Joining us are former acting US Solicitor General and Georgetown Law Professor Neil Katyal, former US Attorney and NBC analyst Joyce Vance, and veteran DEA and Justice Department official Chuck Rosenberg. Our town hall was recorded live on May 31, 2020. We have a packed show today. A lot of people want to know about what's going to happen in November with the elections. They're worried about the safety of their vote. They're worried about the safety of the elections. We're going to talk about the assault on the rule of law. And we also have a special appearance from Senator Dick Blumenthal of Connecticut. He's going to be joining us as well. But first, I want to start with the fact that our cities right now, many of our cities are convulsed in violence and protests and anger. And as the former head of the NAACP, Ben Jealous, said, this is what we see happens when justice is denied for so long. Joyce, I'm gonna start with you because I wanna ask you about something that former Attorney General Jeff Sessions did right before he left office. And it was about denying justice. It was about basically giving license to police departments where there had been civil rights offenses, where they had discriminated and basically saying to them, it's okay. Can you tell us what happened?
3: Sure. You know, there's a, a broad context here, Jane, that helps us focus on what's been going on in Minnesota and other cities and think about ways DOJ has stood up in the past to protect citizens. Because most of law enforcement country in this country happens at the state and local level. There are thousands of different law enforcement agencies. There's a lack of national standards. DOJ in many ways functions as a fail safe for departments that are floundering, that are having problems. And DOJ can go in both on the criminal side with prosecutions where necessary, but perhaps far more importantly on the civil side, As a result of what happened in Los Angeles uh, many decades ago, there's a mechanism that lets DOJ engage in investigations into patterns and practices of misconduct and enter into consent decrees that are used to fix departments. Unfortunately, when he was Attorney General, Jeff Sessions chose to end the use of this consent decree process, and we see in many ways the legacy of that because it not only terminated the process, but it sent a message to departments that they were able to function without the fear of oversight. That was obviously a wrong message, a dangerous message to send.
1: The same principle really came into play, uh, Neil, in a 2013 Supreme Court decision, which had to do with um, basically saying racism is over and we really don't have to monitor states and their voting practices. And in effect, what the Supreme Court said was um, it made it actually made it harder for African-Americans to vote. Now, at one point, I know you won a case in 2009, you defended the Voting Rights Act. Why are we still having this fight?
0: Yeah, you know, Jane, it's it, you're right to say that the Supreme Court in 2013 backed off of what happened in 20, 2009, upholding the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which had as one of its central ideas that there were certain localities that couldn't be trusted; they were playing too many shenanigans with voting and race. Um, but look, I think that this is not about, you know, just voting. Um, I think this is, you know, what we're seeing in Minneapolis is the culmination of decades and decades it goes back even to the way racist policing was in the antebellum era but certainly you know in in the years to follow so much so that you know at this point you know if you're an african-american Uh, you're twice as likely to be the victim of some sort of police incident as as a white person. And it's why, you know, if you ask, you know, in Pew public surveys, for example, if you ask folks, do you trust the police, 75% of white Americans will say, say only 33% of African Americans. And the numbers are staggering, Jane. I mean, this is, you know, we're drawing attention to it, obviously. I mean, people are focusing on it this week. But, I mean, this is a real consistent problem we've had you know last year there were 1099 deaths from police brutality and that number has stayed the same every year from 2013 on you know even with despite the black lives matter movement and the like um and you know so much so that uh when you think about like uh in it to other countries you know in england and wales it took 24 years for the police to shoot and kill 55 people We did that in the first 24 days of this year. Um, That's how bad things are.
1: Okay, but that's, that's part of what we're looking at. Yes, this is what happened this week, but there's a cycle that's recurring. And Chuck, I wanna ask you about something that the late night host Trevor Noah talked about in a very powerful statement this week. He talked about the fact that black people feel that the contract between America and them is broken constantly. They don't feel there is a contract very often. And um, I think Trevor Noah put it in a very unique way when he said, they feel like they're being looted every day by the system. Now, when you see footage of a police officer who's supposed to protect and defend people with his knee jammed into the neck of someone for eight minutes and 46 seconds, people don't understand why there isn't immediate action taken. Can you explain it?
4: What I saw in that tape, Jane, wasn't just shameful, it was disgusting. and It wasn't just disgusting, it was criminal. Uh, They did manage to charge the uh, primary officer uh, quickly, you know, within 24 hours or so. Uh, but these are cases uh, that are difficult to make and uh, difficult to prosecute and often difficult to convict. And so if you want a conviction at the end, and prosecutors do when they charge a case, then you have to take certain steps to ensure that your testimony is, sa- the, sorry, that your evidence is sound, that the testimony is, will come in as you expect it to come in. And so it makes sense to me, uh, even though uh, folks are incredibly passionate about uh, what happened and rightfully so, that you take the time to build the case appropriately. Because the only thing worse, I think, than not charging these officers at all is charging them poorly or charging them in a way in which they can escape justice. And so in the end, if the system is to work, they have to be properly charged. And for them to be properly charged, it has to be properly investigated. Uh, What I saw in Minneapolis, uh, Jane, just to be absolutely clear, was disgusting. Uh, And we do need to hold these officers to account.
1: Okay. I want to go to, to each of you in terms of the background that you bring to the justice system and to the practice of law. And, Neil, I'm going to ask you about something you said at a speech at the University of Chicago. I don't know when you gave the speech, but basically what you said was the founders knew that people weren't angels and that they were going to make mistakes. And that they created a system that would help rectify those mistakes. Now, again, when we're in a week like this, which feels like America's a tinderbox, it feels like with the with the coronavirus, with the pandemic, it, it just feels like all hell is breaking loose. Do you feel like the system can correct these mistakes?
0: I do. Uh, I mean, I'm not like some founder worshiper or anything like that, Jane but I do think that they set up a system that's rooted in the idea that we can't trust our leaders and that they set checks and balances against each other. And you heard Joyce talking about pattern and practice investigations by the Justice Department. The whole formation of the the modern Justice Department in 1870 was to do things like stand up for people's rights, particularly the recent freedmen, uh, the African-Americans who'd been freed um, from after the Civil War. And that's the kind of tradition of the Justice Department that you see people like Joyce and Chuck reflecting in their life's work. Uh, And I am very optimistic that that tradition can come back. Joyce is absolutely right. This administration has gutted it. And um, and is not respectful of any check and balance. So we see it with the firing of inspectors general uh, who, you know, speak out against Trump. You see it with right. the attitude toward any of the critics of the president. So if Twitter, you know, labels two things uh, that the president, you know, factually dubious, he freaks out and launches an executive order against it. You see it in the great check and balance that the founders set up, which is the court system. And every time the court system rules against Trump, he calls it so-called judges and the like, so much so that when the, in the, when the Supreme Court last year said Trump's uh, cabinet secretary, Wilbur Ross, essentially lied to the Supreme Court, you know, they thought for a few weeks about defying the Supreme Court altogether. So the attitude here by this administration of trying to, you know, disregard any check and balance is fundamentally the most un-American thing you can imagine. That is antithetical to everything our founder set up in the Constitution, the notion of checks and balances. But because it's so antithetical, I don't think it's gonna survive. I think that this idea will be, go down the same way as Nixon's ideas will, uh, went down. Uh, laughable, ridiculous, discredited. And I think that this president will go down in history as, you know, a, essentially a joke.
1: Okay, so you're saying this is an outlier and yet people look at what's happening and you have an optimistic view long-term big picture. But it does look like they're getting away with a lot of things. And the question becomes, what does that do to people's faith in the system and in the Department of Justice and the intel community and and and, and institutions that have been long held as pillars of the society? Doesn't it damage them?
0: Oh, I, there's no <laughs> you'll get no argument from me on that, Jane. I think it damages them intensely. Um, I just don't know that it's a mortal wound. And. I think that it's going to be incumbent on all of us after, first of all, I think it's very important that everyone vote. And I don't mean to be political, but just, you know, you can't have someone in office who so fundamentally disrespects the Constitution and its most guiding principles. But I'm very worried that, you know, the tendency will be in a new administration to do the same thing back. You know if they politicize the justice department so should we if they politicize the court system so should we and the like and i think it's incredibly important to you know to to remember that these principles are america at its best when we do respect checks and balances when we have healthy disagreements in, within the executive branch, when we have court oversight, when we have media oversight and inspectors general who are doing their job. Yeah, it's never fun to go through, but that is America at its best.
1: So you're still an optimist about this? Yes. I am. Okay, right. Uh, Chuck, I want to go to you because you've spent um, many years, you were a, a public servant who was heralded um, for his unshakable integrity by former Attorney General Loretta Lynch. You worked with Jim Comey at the FBI. You were a U.S. attorney. You, in your last job, were the acting head of the DEA. Is that correct?
4: That's correct.
1: Yeah. So you served in that position. You, Given the amount of time you worked, obviously, you served under both Republican and Democratic presidents. Mm-hmm. And in the end, you were in the Trump administration for 10 months at the DEA. And The question I have is, why did you leave?
4: A couple of reasons, Jane. I mean, first, I believe that agencies benefit from other people coming in and kicking the tires. I'm not sure that everything I did was right or sensible. And so I think there's a value to an agency to have a change in leadership. Uh, But that wasn't the primary reason. Uh, That was a reason, but not the primary reason. Uh, In the summer of 2017, President Trump gave a speech in Suffolk County, New York, to a group of police officers, in which in my view, and just look at the tape, uh, he condoned police violence. He talked about not being too nice to suspects uh, who are arrested. Why should we put our hand on their head as we help them into a police car, um, he suggested. Uh, And frankly, that just struck me as deeply troubling uh, to come from anybody, let alone uh, the President of the United States. So I wrote an email. Um, that night, sat on it, slept on it, actually didn't sleep on it very much, tossed and turned, uh, and the next morning sent it to my entire workforce, uh, saying that what the president did in condoning police violence was uh, fundamentally unacceptable. We have a compact um, as law enforcement between the people we serve and ourselves. Uh, And even if we don't approve of what they've done, and obviously we don't if we've arrested them for something, Um, We have an obligation, an absolute fundamental obligation uh, to ensure their safety and to um, uh, adhere to the Constitution and the rule of law and to protect their civil rights all the time, always, um, even if we don't approve of what they did. And so uh, that uh, email to my troops uh, quickly leaked out. Uh, I was called in and told that I um, was going to be removed from a position. I could have another one if I wanted it. Uh, somewhere in the bowels of the Department of Justice. I didn't. I asked for enough time to sort of finish up what I needed to finish uh, and I resigned. Uh, But uh, I I don't say that for any reason uh, other than to uh, let you and your viewers know that, you know, the Joyce Vances of the world, the Neil Cottdills of the world would do the exact same thing. In my view, it wasn't that big a deal. It's what we do in law enforcement. We adhere to certain rules. Uh, We respect the Constitution. We abide the oath that we took when we um, uh, raised our right hand to serve in the offices that we held. It frankly wasn't that big a deal. I'm a little mystified uh, that more people uh, aren't doing it now, however.
1: I was going to say that the Washington Post actually had an editorial that that heralded you again for um, your moral compass and for doing what you did. So maybe you didn't see it that way, but that's the way it played. Um, you, you understand that with things being so partisan and politicized that people don't really believe that things can just be done for the sheer sake of principle or for the fact that it's right and that's the way it should be done. Um, do you, is it, can you take the poison out of, out of the process, out of the institution, is it possible?
4: Well, like Neil, I'm an optimist. uh, And I'll tell you why, Jane. Uh, The overwhelming uh, majority of men and women who go into law enforcement or into the diplomatic corps or into the intelligence community or into the military do it for all the right reasons. And I can tell you, they are just as disgusted as we are uh, at the conduct of the officers in Minneapolis. There is a tremendous um, pyramid, a base uh, of uh, people who take their oath seriously. Uh, and who abide the rule of law, uh, and who would never even think about, let alone countenance, uh, the behavior that we saw in Minneapolis. And so I am fundamentally optimistic, but there's a larger problem, right? Neil pointed to it when he um, cited some of the statistics about how uh, African-American citizens feel about law enforcement as compared to white citizens. I get that. I completely understand it. We try very, very hard in law enforcement to build those bridges, And what those officers did in Minneapolis, destroy those bridges. Uh, Much, much harder to build a bridge than to destroy it. And so the people who take this job seriously and take their oath seriously are are mortified at what's happening because it also makes their job harder. One of the things we need to do is connect in our communities. And what you see in Minneapolis and what you've seen, sadly, in other cities around the country makes it much more difficult for citizens to trust law enforcement and to connect with them.
1: I didn't realize when, when we invited you all that you're all actually friends and and you all sound like a mutual admiration society, which is really a nice thing. Um, in fact, I listened, Chuck, you have a podcast that's very popular called The Oath. And I listened to it when you had Joyce on. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot about Joyce, including the fact that she became a federal prosecutor out of a terrible family tragedy. Uh, Joyce, your your father in law who was a federal judge, Robert Vance, was killed by a mail bomb, and his wife was also very seriously injured and after that you you took that direction um, and I guess I want to know what the thought pro how did you decide to do that
3: Well, it was um I think a logical extension of the work that some very fine prosecutors at DOJ did to protect my family, to help us feel like we had received justice, and my husband and I felt like one of us should um, commit some time to public service, and we chose that that one would be me, and my initial expectation was that I would go to the U.S. Attorney's Office for a few years and, and do some public service and then go back to my law firm and I could never quite make myself leave. It was um, an enormous honor to be able to stand up in court and to say that you represented the United States of America. It was, uh, I thought, particularly important for me. I was um, able to work uh, with Doug Jones as the US attorney and had the incredible privilege of working on civil rights cases and on police cases while I was a prosecutor. And in many ways, it was full circle for me. My father-in-law was a big believer uh, in the rule of law, went on the the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals after playing uh, a role in integrating the Alabama Democratic Party and was firmly committed to principles of equality. Uh, and of racial justice, and so in many ways it felt like the work I was doing every day was honoring his memory.
1: That's wonderful. You were actually named the first woman U.S. attorney by uh, President Barack Obama, and you tell a story about how President Obama told you and your colleagues what the mission was when you were sworn in as a U.S. attorney. What was the
3: mission? Well, it was the first time that all of the U.S. attorneys got together, which was not something that happened, but once a year really, and this was the first time that we had gone to the White House. It was a very formalistic setting. Um, There was no personal chit-chat or interchange with President Obama, but he walked into this room where all of the U.S. attorneys had been situated with the White House counsel, who was someone who had gone over to the White House from DOJ, who we all knew real well. Um, and she later told us that he had discarded the notes that she had so carefully prepared for him. And it was clear that he was speaking off the cuff and from the heart and he looked at us and he said, look, you know, I appointed you, but you don't work for me. You work for the American people and I expect you to act with independence and with integrity. Um, And that was a moment that was our charge from the president of the United States and we all took it seriously. It's not easy to be a prosecutor and certainly not easy to be a U.S. attorney. There are always people who want you to do something for whatever reason, and you have to be very clear that your commitment is to the law and that you take action only after careful thought based on the law and the facts. To have the President of the United States tell us that that was our mission was deeply moving and something that all of us always remembered. We had written it down on little you know, little pieces of paper napkin. I mean, that's why those exact words survive.
1: Okay, so when you watch how things are being politicized and when you watch how loyalty is the number one currency, um, not necessarily the rule of law, do you think it's an aberration? Do you think it's an outlier?
3: I do think that that's an outlier. I, I think that this notion of an executive branch that's driven by personal loyalty to the president is an outgrowth of this sort of fringe theory of a unitary executive, a strong, almost all-powerful presidency that really never hit the mainstream in this country before this administration. It is um an aberration, and it really in many ways defiles the intent of the founding fathers like Neil, I'm not a not a groupie, but I you know, I can read the Constitution and, and understand the principles, even though I believe that they should evolve with our country. One evolution that we don't need is a president who acts like a king. The president shouldn't be above the law. I don't think that the American people will stand for that. And I think if we have... Uh, at the risk of being political a a course correction in november and in january then we will be on the path to a a long very difficult restoration of cherished values that will um require i think uh particularly appropriate to discuss today a very candid assessment of the beliefs of people who don't think the system ever worked for them and black americans who will tell you very frankly that this system did not engage them or their rights, we will have to be unflinching in listening to them and in coming up with a better version of America. That was
1: Joyce Vance, and you're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast. We're going to take a brief break, but we'll have more conversation with our guests when we return and questions from our virtual audience, too. Stay with us. You're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast, and I'm your host, Jane Whitney. This conversation was recorded on May 31st, 2020. Our guests are former U.S. Attorney and NBC Analyst Joyce Vance, former Acting U.S. Solicitor General and Georgetown Law Professor Neil Katyal, and veteran DEA and Justice Department official Chuck Rosenberg. In keeping with our town hall format, many of you um, submitted questions when you registered, and we've had some people send in video questions. And um, we're going to roll some of those in right now. So let's start with the first one.
2: Hi, I'm Philippe from New York City. Between voter suppression and the pandemic, how worried should we be about the possibility of having much lower turnout in the November election? Thank you.
1: Chuck, I'm going to ask you to handle that if you would. The question is about, you know, the pandemic obviously has caused all kinds of tertiary problems and and basically people are very fearful about how turnout is going to be depressed, um, especially because uh, mail-in voting is not particularly popular with this administration. In fact, they're on quite a rampage against it. So how concerned do you think people should be about the turnout?
4: Yeah, well, you know, Neil said it earlier, and he's right. If you don't like what's happening, people need to vote. Uh, but I take your viewers' uh, question very seriously because there seems to be, as you pointed out, Jane, um, you know, a, a movement by this administration to try and suppress voter turnout. Many states have tried to make it easier, not harder, for citizens to vote. Um, and mail-in voting, mail-in balloting makes a lot of sense, particularly if we're still in the throes of, of a pandemic. And so you know, short of voting, um, one thing citizens can do now is contact their state representatives and their state senators, their United States representatives right. and their United States senators, and tell them how important it is to make balloting and voting accessible. I do worry about it, but I, th- I think in the end, um, what happens in November is ultimately in our own hands. And so uh, an important question. If we take, by the way, social distancing seriously, uh, and we can flatten the curve, then maybe we won't have this problem sort of, uh, you know, layered over um, the November elections. At least I hope not.
1: Okay, but but Neil, let me ask you about the fact that the president has threatened to cut off federal funding to Michigan and Nevada, um, who were they're moving ahead with mail-in voting initiatives. And um, again, it's this disinformation campaign uh, that somehow there's fraud attached to mail-in voting. Doesn't that potentially depress turnout alone?
0: Well, he's certainly trying to do that. And what he's doing, Trump's actions here, trying to threaten the cutoff of funds to Michigan and other states that have mail-in voting is blatantly illegal and he's gonna lose that. Um, And it just really underscores You know, the Republican Party used to stand for federalism and states' rights. Now, they just throw that principle out. They throw out even just the most fundamental principle that everyone should be entitled to vote. Um, And there's been a concerted effort that Chuck is referring to to try and make it harder for people to vote. There's no studies that suggest that voter fraud is going to be a big problem with mail-in ballots. Indeed, the president himself and his press secretary both use mail-in voting all the time. The Texas Supreme Court this week, Jane, said you can't have mail-in ballots because of the possibility of voting fraud, that you can't have remote voting. They, by the way, voted remotely, the Texas Supreme Court justices, on that very opinion. Um, You know, it's just absurd 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 and um i guess what i'd say you know to just further chuck's points are two things one um the president can't postpone the election um you know i think there's some talk about because of coronavirus he might try and delay the november election constitutionally legally he can do that but what he can do is call those results into question and a president who think you know, claims the victim for everything that's ever happened to him. And, you know, when he loses, I think he will do the same thing. And that's why it's incredibly important to have chains of custody for all of those ballots, um, you know, and integrity to make sure that the ballots are where they are. And for that victory in in November to be decisive, people have got to vote because anything even close at all, you know, he's going to claim, you know, something or the other
1: all right well i'm going to leave joyce with the with the job of answering the most asked question we received today it was first asked by heidi steinberg in new york city the question is what should we do if mr trump tries to stop or interfere with the elections
3: well i think to neil's point he can't stop them congress has set the date and the elections will be held on that day If for some reason they weren't held, his time in office would still terminate in in January. That can't change that. So Neil is correct to point out that the real concern we have here is a long-running concern, voter suppression. I don't recall a time that we've ever seen it directly coming from the White House in such a transparent fashion. It's almost as though the president is afraid to let the people vote. He's afraid of the outcome of that election and again as neil says that's one of our most fundamental rights the right to vote Uh, and the notion that a president would take any steps let alone such blatant ones to suppress voters is really out of bounds it's really a strong signal of an america that's gone uh, off the train tracks so here i think is the answer something that we're seeing is lawsuits in different states across the country because Voting is inherently a localized function. Elections are run by states, often administered by counties and parishes. The rules are different in every state. A fourth of the ballots in 2016 were cast by mail, but there are still states like my home state of Alabama, where you actually need an approved excuse to get an absentee ballot, compared to states like Utah, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, where voting by mail is the norm. And so what we have to do is to advocate in our own states, however we can to expand the possibilities for voting. We want as many people as possible to be able to vote by mail because that will lessen the number of people who will be forced to show up and vote in person during the pandemic. And at the same time, we need to take steps to protect those polling places. We need to, in essence, flatten the curve there by expanding the amount of time that people have to vote, expanding this space. Um, it pains me to sort of disagree with with what Chuck said because I would so like for him to be right. The hope that the pandemic, that that crisis will not impact voting. And yet in a case that was filed last week in state court in Alabama to protect our elections, we learned from one of the, the experts, an infectious disease doctor, that the fear is that not only will coronavirus be resurgent on that timeline, but it, the, it will intersect with uh, the, the annual flu cycle that can be deadly in and of its own. And so we need to be deliberate about taking steps now to protect those elections in November.
1: As you are all probably aware, there are um, groups that have gotten together to look at, they game out doomsday scenarios that have to do with the election. And I think, Neil, actually there's somebody at Georgetown um, who's involved with that, or there's a group at Georgetown that's involved with that. Um, and another question that we got was, what happens if um, Mr. Trump doesn't like the results of the election and refuses to leave? Do you have an answer for that?
0: Well, I mean, you know, the, the answer is he's got to leave one way or the other. And, um, and, you know, it may take, I mean, should that happen, I, I think that um, uh, the, the government would take steps, the new government, to remove him. Um, and, um, you know, such a thing, I would have thought unthinkable before Donald Trump, but he has shown himself um, to not believe in any aspect of the rule of law that constrains him. So I sure hope it doesn't come to that. But if it does, you know, the American system is the American system. And, you know, when you lose, you lose. And, um, uh, you know, I hope it's a decisive law so that, you know, he can't, can't uh, you know, try and sit in the chair and, and stay in it. And uh, that force won't be necessary. Um, and, you know, I, I anticipate force won't be necessary uh, at the end of the day. Um, okay. I think, uh, you know, uh, he will know he's the biggest loser in the world.
1: If he loses. Okay, we're going to move on now to another question, I think we have Rebecca lined up. Hi, I'm Rebecca from Connecticut. Can anything be done to stop Attorney General William Barr from showing more loyalty to President Trump than he does to the rule of law? Thank you. Here to answer that question is somebody who has had a lifetime of public service, Part of it was 20 years as the attorney general for the state of Connecticut. We're very pleased to welcome to the show the senior senator from Connecticut, Richard Blumenthal. Senator Blumenthal, thanks for being with us.
2: I'm happy to answer Rebecca's question, but first, Jane, let me thank you for having me on this wonderful conversation with three of my heroes. I think of them a lot because they embody the ethos and tradition of law enforcement that is the reason I have in my office hanging the seal of the Department of Justice. I received that seal after I finished as United States Attorney for Connecticut, the Chief Federal Prosecutor. And Rebecca's question goes exactly to the crisis that we face. We're in the midst of a stress test. I think it's an existential threat to our democracy because as her question implies and as your guests have said previously, William Barr is acting more as the president's personal attorney, his Roy Cohn, which is what he wanted his attorney general to be. I voted against William Barr as attorney general. As a member of the Judiciary Committee, I spoke against him and then voted against him as I did William Sessions. And what we can do, number one, is remove Donald Trump from office. But number two, in the meantime, take Donald Trump to court, rely on that third article of the United States Constitution, those judges who are sworn to uphold the law. Donald Trump has replaced about a third of them at the appellate level now, believe it or not, in three and a half years. A third of his appointees are members of the federal bench, but we can still rely on them. Neil mentioned earlier that census decision. They struck down his effort to suppress compliance with the census based on the citizenship question. They struck down his effort to stop funding for states that have sanctuary cities, just as he might try now to withhold funding from states that fail to go along with his idea of the law. And so I think we can still rely on the courts, but here is the real danger sign in my view. He has now become a tool of the right wing, the extremist, hard right of the Republican Party in appointing judges. He has a conveyor belt going through the Senate, funded by dark money going through the Federalist Society and the Donor Trust and all those shell groups that are funding the campaign as they did Kavanaugh's and Gorsuch's, public relations companies that are at his behest. And that kind of effort, literally, to replace judges as quickly as possible, as efficiently and quickly as possible through the Senate. He has now gotten Mitch McConnell to become a conveyor belt for him. So we need to raise the alarm, Rebecca. We need to alert citizens. The judges are being replaced by these hard right politicians in robes, and the use of dark money to fund this system is one of the great scandals of the Trump presidency.
1: The decision to drop the case against uh, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn by the Department of Justice, by Mr. Barr, has been called one of the worst decisions um, I don't know ever, but it was really critiqued as something that was unprecedented and terrible. Um, And yet, Mr. Mr. Barr basically said that um, when he was asked about it, he laughed and he said, "Well, history's." written by the winners, and um, I stand by the decision. Now, could you talk a little bit about why that that decision is so significant and really what it means in terms of um, the institution? Uh,
2: That decision is completely and utterly abhorrent and aberrant. It reflects a complete abuse of power by the attorney general, a politicization of uh, judicial decision. And what can be done about it is number one, I've joined uh, about a thousand of my colleagues, former prosecutors. Joyce Vance is one of them, saying to the court, you need to have a hearing and you need to review this decision because it is against Rule 48, it is against Article 2 of the Constitution, it abridges the public interest and there is no justification for dropping a prosecution. In fact, it's not a prosecution, it's a conviction, two convictions that involve guilty pleas under oath with full knowledge of the facts. And my hope is that Judge Sullivan will heed the law and the facts here as we have raised them in our amicus brief, and we're only one of a number, and as I hope an independent in effect appointee of the court will do in arguing the public interest before that court but let me say to to you and rebecca and everybody who's listening what ultimately is involved here is the court of public opinion the courts are a check but we are now going to be tested this fall and i hope rebecca i hope everyone who cares about our system of justice will go to the polls, but even more, take somebody else to the polls with you. And I can't tell you how to vote. I think you know, but if you care about our justice system, you'll change the current occupant of the White House. And as for his leaving, I'm also a member of the Armed Services Committee, along with the Judiciary Committee. And if the president relies on some kind of martial law, some kind of use of the military, I think he will be surprised because I think our military will be totally fed up and unwilling to cooperate with a president who in effect defies the law and ultimately uses the Department of Justice in effect to try to mobilize the military on his behalf. So I think that question is very, very pertinent. I hope that the court will say about the Flynn case, he has been convicted This matter is now before the court. It's in my hands, not yours, Mr. Barr. And I am going to continue this case with sentencing. And whatever the sentence is, this case cannot be dismissed simply because you politically want to do the president's bidding.
1: You make a prediction that's going to happen? You think that will happen?
2: You know, I wish I could predict. What courts will do. I've been I knew you, in court. I knew you weren't going so to predict it. Uh, right. As a trial lawyer, but I think if Judge Sullivan follows his instincts, he will c- continue the prosecution and refuse to, in effect, dismiss the case. Whether he decides on the law and the facts to do so, I know from having been a prosecutor and a trial attorney, and uh, we have some even more experienced members of this panel, maybe they'll make a prediction. But I know what my hope is, and I have a lot of confidence in Judge Sullivan.
1: Emily Bazelon and Eric Posner wrote a piece in the New York Times. Uh, There used to be justice and now there's Bill Barr or something to that effect, which basically went through the litany of transgressions committed by this Justice Department under Mr. Barr, including twisting the findings of the Mueller report, thwarting impeachment, um, the list goes on and on. Ultimately, I go back to you can hammer institutions, you can batter them, you can trample them. And inevitably, there has to be some damage. And when you talk about the court of public opinion, people see what's happening and they say, but they get away with everything. They've won, they're obliterating the system. I know that things can be repaired often and you can, and you can resurrect and build things back. But in your opinion, how serious is the damage that's been inflicted on the whole notion of justice in this country?
2: I think deeply serious. And I wish I shared Neil's optimism about the complete resilience and self-repairing quality of our justice system. Because I think your point is the key one, you made it earlier, that at the end of the day, our courts, our justice system, depend on their credibility and trust, the respect of the American people for the rule of law. And what you see in the streets today is an example of how people are losing hope. And it's not just in the justice system. The pandemic has treated people of color much more poorly. They have been so much more severely impacted because of injustices in our healthcare system. But I think that the resilience of our justice system will depend on all of us who have been involved in it, coming back into it. People like Neil and Chuck and Joyce and those colleagues who joined in the amicus brief, all of them coming back to the system and saying, we're going to turn the page just as we did after John Mitchell. Remember, John Mitchell actually went to prison. That's how deeply infected that justice system or Department of Justice was with the contagion of political interference. And I think we can do it, but it will be no easy task because the damage is serious. People's loss of respect for the institution, I think is very understandable, but I would just add this note in in, in a hopeful way. In the Department of Justice at this very moment, just as in our police forces and our state prosecutor's office, there are people who share the very powerful devotion to public service that you just heard from Joyce Vance. I was moved by her explanation of how and why she became a prosecutor and eventually United States Attorney. And I could not help but be moved as well by her statement about standing in court and saying how moved she was when she said she represented the United States of America. Now, I think there are people of goodwill and dedication and integrity throughout the Department of Justice who are gonna come back and restore that faith, hope and respect.
1: Okay, Senator Blumenthal, that's a prediction that we're gonna hold you to. We are very grateful that you've been able to join us today and I have to say that I'm moved by all four of you because I think that your voices need to be amplified in a time when people really are yearning for, and it sounds corny, but they're yearning for hope, they're yearning to believe the system still works, that it could still work for them. And in a very tough week, when I was reading about all of you once again, um, I, I really wanted people to hear you talk about how you value the rule of law over everything else. And and Senator Blumenthal, we're very grateful for your service and so glad you were able to join this broadcast today. So thank you very much for being with us.
2: I'm grateful for all your great work, Jane, and very honored to be on your show. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to move on now to um, a question, Neil, that came in from Andrea Flink in New York City um about actually cases that are i think in the supreme court right now to do with um, mr trump's financial records and his taxes and andrea flink wants to know what you think is going to happen what do you think the verdict is going to be in those cases
0: so the supreme court heard these cases three weeks ago and the decisions expected by the end of june there are basically two sets of cases one is from the House, uh, the the House committee um, in Washington that wants to see some of Trump's financial records. And another is, um, is coming from the prosecutor, the local prosecutor in New York, who also wants to see financial records there because they're worried about tax uh, violations alleged, uh, because of the Stormy Daniels payments, which looks like President Trump might have decided to expense as a business expense or something like that. So There's open, ongoing investigations, and the president did something very um, unusual. He said, I don't have to give any of this information over to these legitimate law enforcement entities. He's got essentially no real legal leg to stand on, um, and I think that the questioning by the justices revealed that. Um, And, you know, I know that it's um, sometimes fashionable to say, Oh, well, this Supreme Court, because there's five of the nine are appointed by Republican presidents, they'll never, you know, go against President Trump. But you know that's not the way I think about it. Um, and indeed, like the census case last year really illustrated that, in which they did go against President Trump. And so um, I suspect that one way or another, those records are going to be delivered to those investigators. That doesn't mean that we will all see them. Um, because there's grand jury material and other things or there could be in, in some of these cases some grand jury material um, the financial records themselves uh, you know are to be, Provided on a confidential basis to the investigators, so all of that suggests to me we may not find out for a while what's in them until there there's uh, you know possibly a criminal action taken, but at some point we probably will find out, and I do think the president will lose. Um, He's been making these kinds of absurd arguments in the court about how the law can't touch him um, and really the the president who did that before, you know Richard Nixon lost those cases in the Supreme Court unanimously and i wouldn't be shocked to see the same thing happen here
1: okay joyce when you were listening to senator blumenthal did you have any thoughts in terms of what he was talking about to the damage that to the institution to the justice department and just generally how people see things in this country in terms of fairness
3: you know i don't think any of us would minimize the damage to the institutions that's been delivered by this administration Um, And frankly, the view it's taken that DOJ is a political tool to be wielded by a president. I think what we're expressing, though, and what people should take comfort from is that there are a lot of fail-safes that will permit DOJ with um, proper care and proper management to return to its mission of serving the American people. The problem will be, or at least the initial challenge will be, whether DOJ can regain people's trust, and that will in large part be a function of leadership both in the White House and in the Justice Department. There will be a need, I think, frankly, to take some of these long-accepted norms, like the fact that DOJ doesn't take its orders from the White House on individual criminal cases, and to turn those principles into law as opposed to practice. That's the sort of remedy that we saw at the end of the Nixon administration. And to the extent that there's anything that gives us guidance for the challenges ahead, it's it's that transition. So I think the institutions have the capacity to be resilient, and we will need good leaders who understand not only what their job is, but that they must fulfill, at least at DOJ, their job in a very apolitical fashion cannot be um, this notion that because the Trump administration acted in a certain way, we'll continue to act that way. The behavior will have to be above reproach. The leadership will have to be people with a reputation for acting in an apolitical fashion. I don't think any of us would pretend that that will be an easy job, but we all have, I think, confidence that there are sufficient leaders. Um, in law enforcement, in the justice community at large, who will be able to, to put that into practice.
1: Chuck, do you agree with her on that? Do you think that, it, I mean, again, you, you're sort of optimistic about how things can be, how there can be a resurgence, how there can be a renaissance. How do you feel about that?
4: No, I generally agree with Joyce. I find that I disagree with Joyce at my own, uh, you know, at my own risk. But her <laughs> point about Codifying or formalizing certain practices, I think, is a really important one. You know, for instance, Joyce mentioned the fact that um, alluded to the fact that communications between the White House and the Justice Department by practice or uh, by policy have been limited. But that's not a rule, and it can be violated, and it seems to have been violated in this administration. So uh, that's something I think we can absolutely tighten up. Right? We can make it the rule that only very few people at the Department of Justice can communicate with the White House, and that when they do, it would only be about you know, certain policy matters or judicial nominations, but never about criminal enforcement. You know, The Department of Justice is a strange animal in the following way. It is a part of the executive branch, and the attorney general is a part of the president's cabinet. Uh, he is a politically appointed, and he is answerable um, to the president. And so there are times when it is absolutely appropriate for the Department of Justice to be in communication with the White House. Again, about judicial nominations or policy or budget or about um, enforcement priorities. But it is never appropriate, never appropriate uh, for the president or anyone in the White House to to direct criminal enforcement actions against certain people or enemies. That's the real danger. And I do think, to Joyce's point, we can formalize certain mechanisms by rule or regulation or law uh, to preclude this from ever happening again. That's the real danger. Not that the Justice Department occasionally communicates with the White House about policy, but that the White House is directing criminal enforcement actions. That's what needs to be fixed, and it needs to be fixed on day one of a new administration.
1: Okay. I want to move on to another question, and this one has been specifically asked Um, by someone who wants to talk to Neil. So let's roll that question.
5: Hi, Professor, this is Harry McAlevey an incoming 3L at Georgetown Law, whom you judged in the Beaudry Moot Court competition last year. Now, my question relates to your time in the federal government, um, where you spent several years at the Solicitor General's office, um, including heading that office for some time. Now, there's a debate currently between those who believe that career government lawyers who see the degradation of the rule of law the trampling um, of the norms that uphold our legal system, um, that they have a duty to resign when they see such actions by this administration and Attorney General Barr in particular. Um, but there are those on the other side who say that those career lawyers actually have a duty to stay in their positions um, and try to mitigate the damage being done as much as possible, um, both to the rule of law and to the institutional reputation um, of the Department of Justice and the government writ large. So I'm curious where you stand um, on that debate that's currently happening in government offices across this country. Neil?
0: <laughs> well, thank you for the question. I'm glad that I'm glad that all the viewers can see just how amazing Georgetown Law students truly are. Um, and the question's a really hard one. I remember during the transition in 2016, several of my Republican friends asked my advice about going in, and I unequivocally said, absolutely go in. That's your duty as an American to go in and help a president to help a Justice Department and the like. And with every passing month, um, that advice you know, started to curdle, um, so much so that starting probably in about uh, 20, 20, the end of 2017, I started advising my friends not to go in, that um, it was um, uh, veering on a lawless uh, administration and a lawless Justice Department, something bent on destroying our principles. Um, But if you're a career person, which is what your question is, it's different. You're already there. And the question is, do you resign? Um, And if you resign, then that spot is likely to be taken by someone in your ordinarily career hiring at the Justice Department is totally non-political, And then you're not supposed to ask about politics or anything. But as I understand it, um, there's been a lot of politicized hiring of the career slots. And so career officials today have to worry if they leave, um, they're going to be replaced by a Politico in that career slot. And so that's a really hard thing. And then you also have to think, like, do you try and steer into the skid if you're in the career uh, a career position? Can you try and shape things in a good way? You know, I think many different people at all levels, you know, from H.R. McMaster on down, have thought, if I stay in, I can try and get this thing into a better place, the administration, than it otherwise would be. Um, invariably it seems like those efforts have failed because this administration will do anything it can to get rid of those who dissent. Just take, for example, what happened in the last couple of days. There's a guy named da- Dana Buente, who um, Chuck knows very well, um, who actually, when Sally Yates resigned in 2017 as acting attorney general, um, because she wouldn't re- defend the travel ban, he came in to defend it. He did Trump's work for him. And um, he's a career, you know, a, a career prosecutor um, and uh, did a lot of other Trump's work for him over the last couple of years. But even he, because he expressed some doubts, uh, Jane, about the Michael Flynn case you're asking about and said, look, I don't think this evidence exculpates him. He was fired. Um, so, you know, you can do all the things you want to try and please Trump. But at the end of the day, um, the moment you cross him, you're out of a job. And that is just not the way the federal government um, should work, and so I think it's a very hard call, and it'll depend a lot on what that individual career person is doing. Obviously, if they're asked to do something immoral that's contrary to their beliefs or the U.S. Constitution, they absolutely have to resign. And Chuck has paved uh, a, a wonderful example for that. But if uh, you know, if it's something short of that, it's a it's a hard call. And I, you know, my heart goes out to all those folks. And you know, I talk to someone almost every week from the Justice Department who's um, in this uh, wrenching situation, which involves balancing conscience and prudence and commitment to the law, commitment to the profession and your own moral center.
1: Chuck, um, you hear all the time that the morale at the Justice Department, the morale a lot of places with some of the folks who have been there for years is really, really low. When you had to make the decision about whether or not to stay or to leave, was it really just clear to you that you you had to go based on principle?
4: It was clear I had to go. There was no um, option. Look, you know, Neil said it uh, particularly well. Here's what happens, Jane. If you're asked to do something, you can try and have the decision maker change his or her mind. And if you fail at that and you believe that is unethical or illegal, right, you can either carry it out, which I would never recommend, or you resign. It's really that simple. It's binary. You carry it out or you resign. Now, there are lots of things that happen in the Justice Department, or I imagine the State Department or the Commerce Department, that you don't necessarily agree with. That's not what Neil is talking about. You don't resign every time there's a disagreement. You resign when somebody asks you to do something that's uh, unethical or illegal, um, or, or that in good conscience you just can't carry out. And yeah, I think it's pretty easy. I don't mean to oversimplify that part of it. Neil also makes another really important distinction. Um, he was talking about political leaders, and we understand that when we come in, we serve at the pleasure of a president. And so we can be removed as easily as we can be appointed. Um, but for the career men and women, you know, I hope they take a slightly different calculus. I hope they take a long view. Right now, we all feel like we're sort of bobbing in a... In a, in a In water and we can't see the shore. What we don't know is whether it's a pond or an ocean. Um, My hope is that it's a pond. My hope is that it's a relatively small uh, period of time. It passes quickly, hopefully in November. New adult leadership comes in and, you know, not to extend this metaphor too much, rights the ship. Um, But for career men and women, uh, I think it's important that they consider why they joined and consider staying, because this, I believe, is aberrational, and this, I believe, shall pass.
1: Okay. We have time for one more video question, and then we're going to have closing comments, so let's roll the final question.
0: Hi, I'm Eliza from San Francisco. It seems clear that the U.S. is experiencing a frightening retreat from democracy. In the past several years, civil society groups like Protect Democracy and the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection have stepped in to protect the rule of law. But it does seem that the so-called democracy sector has to be much bigger. What will it take to make a movement for
1: democracy that's big enough to succeed? I'm going to turn that one to Joyce. Actually, you know, Neil, she sounds like she goes to Georgetown Law. I don't know. It's quite a question. Uh, And I'm going to ask uh, Joyce to field that, if you would.
3: It is a really great question, and it's a tough question. The fact that you're asking it at all, I think, gives uh, us a lot of reason to be hopeful about the future. One of the worst failures that we've seen in our country, it's a failure in our leadership, but it's a failure that we need to all own as well, is uh, permitting words like compromise to become dirty words. We need to yet again find ways to listen to people that we don't always agree with and reach compromise. That was, of course, what made this country great. And the alternative is having a gabble of four-year-olds insisting on getting their own way and jumping up in, in the corner when they don't have everything fall out precisely how they want it to. The right path forward for democracy is inherently through listening to a variety of different views and then democratically voting to decide which uh, views will prevail in in fair elections, whether that's who will lead us in the White House or how will we vote on a given law in the Senate and also down into state and and local government. So restoring the democratic process, building what you ask about an alliance that's broadly based enough to sustain it will require very simply this, that, that we all recommit to that as a principle of government, that our interest is in being governed by a rule of law country. Even if that means that there are times when the group that we're aligned with, whether it's a political group or some other group, that that group doesn't hold power in that particular moment. The the way I've often looked at what happens to our country in, in the last few years is that it's like a card game, a card game that consists of multiple hands. And if you become so focused on winning one hand that you're willing to burn the whole game down, Then there's no game left to play i don't mean to suggest that our government is a game but it's that same principle we all have to be committed to the long term and not just to each incremental stage in process in our country that's the only way that we can create a broadly based movement that will pick up the pieces and and move us forward
1: but given how divided the country is neil how viable is that concept of people pulling together And recommitting to the rule of law. Um, Again, the message has been loud and clear today that all all three of you basically feel this is um, sort of an outlier. It's it's um, it's not typical. It's unprecedented. We have all kinds of words for it. But the point is, uh, this theoretically will pass at some point. But you've got. The, the sort of collateral um, negativity that's left with a lot of people who watch the system not work during this particular period. So how do you get past that and have people recommit?
0: I do think we do get past it. I 100% agree with Joyce on this. So it's everything from, you know, new institutions, like the one your questioner just asked about, my, my nonprofit, the Institute for Constitutional Accountability and Protection, which is devoting its time and energy to this work and protect democracy and others. But it's also Jane the fact and you know Chuck and Joyce and I talk about this a lot. Every time we go on TV and talk about it, there are you know thousands and thousands of people who care about this who've never cared you know, never really focus on the Justice right. Department before the rule of law, but now really care about it. It's the fact that, you know, Republican lawyers, you know, people like, you know, centrist, you know, very respected Republican lawyers like Orrin Kerr, George Conway, or Don Ayer, or Peter Kaisler, all these folks are coming together and saying, this isn't the Justice Department I know, this isn't the rule of law I know, and the like, and you know, as someone whose parents came from another country, you know, a country that didn't have the traditions of our founders, didn't have our documents, didn't have our commitment to checks and balances, You know, I feel it very palpably. I I don't mean to minimize all the terrible traditions of this country, because they're there too. But, you know, this is a system that has allowed progress over time. Um, And it's a long arc, as Dr. King says, but it is an arc. And I'll just leave your viewers with this vision. You know, I, I remember coming into the Justice Department in 2009, I was 39 years old, an Indian American, working for an African American attorney general Eric Holder, and going and walking into the Supreme Court of the United States to defend the Voting Rights Act of 1965, an act that had, you know, the blood of Americans on the bill, the pages of that bill. And, you know, um, Mm -hmm. we passed that act. We had that act survive for a long time. We've had great attorneys general of color, not of color, but who have committed to the rule of law from both political parties. We can get back there. And there's a groundswell in this country that wants that desperately and yes I know that right now our hearts hurt um, as they should Um, but our hearts hurt after the bridge in 1965 too and um, after so many of the painful things that Richard Nixon did but we found a way past it and we will again
1: okay Um, closing question for each of you. And, Chuck, I, I know you all teach. Chuck, uh, you teach at, is it GW?
4: No, it's at um, Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. So, I teach at the college. Neil teaches at the law school, but we're both at Georgetown.
1: Do you ever disagree with each other? You all seem to really agree today on just about everything. Is there ever, Do you have you actually ever disagreed with, uh, with Neil, Chuck?
4: Uh, No, Neil's a heck of a lot smarter than me, so I can't find a good reason why I would disagree with Neil.
1: Good answer. Okay, let me ask you this question. It doesn't really matter where you teach. What matters is that you're you're dealing with young folks who are seeing, again, what's happening in this country and could develop a cynicism, theoretically, um, and sort of a jaundiced view going forward. What's your best speech to somebody who really feels that there isn't any hope going forward for the Justice Department or the justice system?
4: Well, I got to tell you, Jane, that students in my seminar don't come to it without hope. Uh, They come to it because they are, frankly, specifically motivated, many of them, to serve, right, in the intelligence community, in the diplomatic corps, uh, in the Justice Department, uh, in the Department of Defense. Now, they do ask me whether this is a good time to serve. Um, and I tell them, uh, and I've always told them, and I think I will continue to tell them, yes, it is. We need people like you. We need, you know, really, really smart folks at, you know, like th- at, at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown to serve. I mean, that's what's going to make us healthy and well in the long run. There, are, These are challenging times, absolutely, no question about it. And I am worried, but I remain an optimist and I try and share that with them. I always thought it was a privilege to serve. It was the privilege. It was the privilege of a professional lifetime uh, to spend more than two ge- two decades in the Department of Justice, and frankly, I urge them to do the same thing.
1: Okay, final word from you, and and Neil, I'm going to ask you about something that you uh, you wrote a book with. Um, I think you had a co-author, who said that basically you absolutely Neil Katyal absolutely believes that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. He says that's absolutely your principle. Now, I I think you have three children who are growing up in this very sort of turbulent time. Um, What do you say to them when I assume they say, why is this happening? Why are things not fair? Why are things not just? What do you say to your kids?
0: Well, I think that things haven't been fair in America from the start. Um, are they fairer than in some other countries? Absolutely. Um, do we have traditions of fairness that we can call upon? Yeah, and that's our job and our duty. And so Jane, the thing I've been thinking about a lot in the spirit of your question is, okay, it's great for all of us to, you know, do events like this to talk on MSNBC to write books, articles, all of that stuff. But how do we reach young people? Um, because I think there's a little bit of a loss of civics in this country um, and a loss of understanding some of the great stories. Um, And so we only remember the poisonous ones. And the fact is there are so many great parts about the American tradition and about our system of government. And so you know, my next project will be trying to come up with some sort of TV show aimed at young kids that does this, that tries to talk about this in a way that's... that's, um, you know, um, accessible to them and, um, and highlights the great, great things about this nation. So I'm really optimistic we can get there. Um, but I think that there's so much work to do. There was there would have been work anyway, if we had a normal presidency, the fact that we had this lawless, um, uh, you know, almost thug like president has made our work even more important.
1: But don't you think maybe one of the silver linings is that, as we've talked about earlier, people really have become more engaged. People who formerly really weren't paying attention suddenly are very, very active and very involved. So that could be one of the things that's an upside of what's going on.
0: Exactly. That's a springboard by which we could actually, you know, there's a world in which this gets better than it otherwise could have been, that Trump actually is a um, catalyst. Uh, you know, to 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 really get the better angels of ourselves um, uh, into government.
1: Okay. Last question to you, Joyce. Uh, There's a young woman named Rachel who's considering going into uh, sort of criminal justice. She's not quite sure. She wants to do something to bring back the system that we've been talking about today. And I once read a piece about you where you talked about the best piece of advice you ever got. Do you remember what it was? I don't, want to th- I don't want to put you on the spot, but the best piece of advice that you ever got. I think I um, did. Go, I, okay, because obviously this is not rehearsed, but I mean, I, I was so struck by it. So what would you tell Rachel in terms of going ahead with her plan to try and resurrect the justice system?
3: Well, I hope we're thinking about the same thing, Jane. It certainly applies either way. I, I was given some really good advice Specifically in this line of work as a prosecutor, but generally in life, you got to be able to look in the mirror every morning when you get up and like what you see. You have to be comfortable with what you're doing. You're answerable to a lot of people. Ultimately, you're answerable to yourself and to your own instincts. Um, Like Neil says, we hope that we have a world that permits our better angels to be the ones that are the most predominant. Working in the criminal justice system is the commitment and the honor of a lifetime. Uh, For those of us who believe that America's unfinished business continues to be civil rights work, criminal justice presents one of the most compelling civil rights challenges out there. I expect to be committed to that work for the remainder of my professional life and beyond. I would encourage anyone who's willing to take up America's challenges to take that work up. There's a lot of work left to be done it's rewarding personally, but most importantly, it's essential to our, our survival and our health as a nation.
1: It has been an absolute honor to meet you, Joyce Vance, Chuck Rosenberg, Neil Katyal. You surpass your advanced billing. You're, you're just, I don't mean to fawn or gush, but I have to tell you, I think you've given a lot of people watching today hope that there are better days ahead. And so we're very grateful to you for donating your time and your talent here today. And also uh, to Dick Blumenthal, to Senator Blumenthal for joining us. And of course, all of you out there. Before we break away, I wanna tell you that next up we have a show that will be unlike any other this season. That's because Joy Reid from MSNBC, civil rights activist Maya Wiley, and political analyst Jason Johnson will be here talking about race in America and how they believe race is going to play a very important role in the upcoming election. Our virtual town hall will record live on June 28th, and we hope that you'll join us. Learn more and register at ConversationsOnTheGreen.com. The Conversations on the Green podcast is a partnership with Connecticut Public Radio. Our producer is
3: Jay Holt.